Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Believe it or not, there's no national data on how, when, and on whom police officers use force. Instead, researchers and journalists have to assemble what they can from public records requests and begging. And now the Marshall Project has assembled data from six cities on the use of force on children. Among the findings, they show that black girls are disproportionately harmed. We'll talk about their research. And then our first person series continues with poet Antonio Lopez, author of Hentification and an East Palo Alto City Council person. That's coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Across the country, an alarming and disproportionate number of black girls and teenagers were involved in police use of force cases, according to a recent analysis by the Marshall Project. The nonprofit news organization, which focuses on criminal justice in America, found that thousands of minors each year are subjected to what police consider, quote, low-level use of force, ranging from being tackled to the ground to pepper sprayed to having guns pointed at them. Reporters analyzed thousands of incident records from six major cities and found that black girls made up 20 percent of the youth involved, compared with white girls at 3 percent. Joining us to talk about this reporting are the Marshall Project's Abby Van Sickle, a staff writer. Welcome. Thank you. And the Marshall Project's Weiwa Lee, a data reporter. Thanks for coming on, Weiwa. Thanks for having us. Abby, maybe you can start by telling us about Brianna Stewart and what happened to her? Sure. So Brianna Stewart uh, was 15 years old. She was living in Hagerstown, Maryland, uh, when one day she was riding her bike through town and got into an accident with a car. Um, She was on the ground dazed. Uh, The driver had called in uh, for emergency services to come. Um, Police arrived and Um, Brianna thought she was okay. She started to get back on her bicycle and police um, didn't want her to leave. And they pulled her off the bike with her backpack. Um, They pushed her into a wall, handcuffed her. And then she was really upset at them. um, And it just kind of escalated. They put her in a patrol car. When she refused to put her foot inside, they pepper sprayed her in the face. And um, hers is one of many cases that we looked at throughout the country of Um, what had happened to Black girls um, in these encounters with police and the really sort of long-term impact um, that these incidents had on their lives. 
How did the police department explain their actions in this particular case? You know, we reached out to the police department. They sent us a statement um, that they stand by their officers. Um, and that's that's really the extent of the response we got from the department. Wow. And did Brianna Stewart's family take action against the police department or, or try and get um, uh, justice in some other way? Yes. So uh, Brianna Stewart's family, back when this happened, um, they filed a lawsuit against the police department. They did receive a settlement. Um, as this, this incident was sort of unfolding, the police department um, did respond publicly in a press conference to say that they felt their officers used an appropriate amount of force. Um, meanwhile, Brianna's family uh, you know, came forward to say that they felt what had happened was excessive and that she had been manhandled by the officers. Did you feel like this was a representative case of the sort of trends that you you later found? Yes. Yeah, so of the cases that we looked at, like I said, throughout the country in communities, small and large, um, some of the things that came you know, to be a, a real pattern were these incidents that started with something very sort of small and juvenile, like a bike accident, um, some kids at a trampoline park, uh, some girls who were at a condominium pool. And these incidents just quickly escalated into levels of force against the girls, um, takedowns, pepper spray, tasing. Uh, we found uh, you know, some really consistent patterns. What led you to this investigation in the first place, going, you know, looking at how police interact with kids and, and teens? Yeah, so at the Marshall Project, we had worked on um, a year-long series looking at the use of police dogs um, throughout the country. Uh, and one of the stories that was one of the final pieces we worked on was um, looking at a community in Louisiana where police dogs are being used on teenagers. And right around the time that that story came out, there was also um, a viral video of a girl who was nine in Rochester, New York, um, being pepper sprayed in the back of a patrol car. And those, those two things sort of just kind of came together and made us wonder, what are the rules around police use of force on minors? Uh, what kinds of force, you know, tasers, police dogs, can pepper spray? Um, how do officers think about this use of force? And then what happens with the kids who are experiencing this? Um, you know, to experience something that serious when you are, you know, your brain is still developing, you're still growing, what impact does that have on your life? So Weiwa, tell me about how you went about assembling this data on these use of force incidents. Of course, we um, initially was looking out for um, any national data, but then we soon realized that the national data um, are quite sparse. Um, and the, the good ones put together by news organizations like the Washington Post focus more on um, death and police shootings. But we know um, from what Abby was talking about, a, a lot of these incidents may not cause um, grave physical injury, but they have a long-term implication on the minors. Mm -hmm. So we then went um, and looked for publicly available data sets from 70 of the largest um, departments in the country. Um, and that led, led us to narrow it down to six police departments that have good enough, recent enough data that will allow us to look at this disparity. Wow. So on the National database side, there is supposed to be this FBI use of force database. Why, why can't you use that? 
Right. So the national FBI uh, database um, is um, so the, the departments will submit their data to the FBI voluntarily. There is nothing that requires them to do so. And um, that it had said is quite recent. And um, when we look at it, um, in most recent years, uh, majority of police departments who reported their data to the FBI using force database reported zero incidents. Um, we know from looking at major cities that, you know, it's not necessarily the case. So it wasn't a reliable enough or, you know, inclusive enough data set for us to use. So which cities were you eventually able to get data for? Of course. So we look at cities like um, Chicago, New Orleans. Um, we also look at uh, Minneapolis, Indianapolis, Columbus, Ohio, as well as uh, Portland, Oregon. And what we found is in every single one of these cities, Black girls are overwhelmingly, uh, disproportionately impacted by police use and force. For example, in New Orleans, we saw that, you know, over the past five, six years, every single girl who encountered police use and force um, was Black. Mm. Abby, can I uh, ask you about sort of differences between these cities? I mean, Portland, Oregon, New Orleans, Chicago are very different places uh, on a lot of different you know, socioeconomic and demographic levels. Did you find meaningful differences between these cities in their use of force against black girls and teenagers? Well, that's one of the things that I think we found most interesting about the reporting is that we were trying to get cities that are you know different uh, in different parts of the country, different politics. You know, we were trying to sort of see if the disparities held sort of no matter where we looked. And that's what we ended up finding, that there these racial disparities held um, in, in cities that have totally different populations in um, different regions. Yeah. So we know that there isn't this national perfect database. But there is some other data, right, Abby? I mean, in, in California, researchers have assembled some data on incidents where kids went to the emergency room. That's right. So, um, and we also were able to use some national data on injuries that's compiled by the CDC. Um, and so with the CDC data, they track injuries uh, where um, people are taken to an emergency room. And they have a category for legal intervention, which is police use of force or armed security guards. And so we were able to get that nationally. That does not give the specifics of the cases. We can't look at narratives to understand, you know, are these all minor incidents? Are these, you know, uh, all very serious injuries? But we could get a sense of the number that way. And the same in California, um, where some Berkeley researchers just released a report um, this fall where they looked at about 16,000 kids and teenagers who had gone to hospitals in California um, after interacting with law enforcement. And that's between 2005 and 2017. And, uh, and we thought that their report was really interesting because it was very similar to what we were finding, which is that um, Black boys were far and away the most, uh, you know, subject to the most police use of force, um, but that black girls um, were, you know, many more times likely than white girls to be hurt. Um, and that there were, there was a, you know, a, a substantial number of them who were brought to emergency rooms for police force in California. 
And are you able to sort of using the data you've got, the more detailed data, and looking at some of these other data sets that are more about injuries that ha- have occurred, are you able to do any extrapolation to sort of how widespread a problem this is, how many uh, black girls are, are are subject to this kind of uh, incident across the country or no? Yeah, so uh, so we, you know, the best estimate that we can get is the CDC estimate, uh, at least, you know, <laughs> we've scoured, you know, every possible database that we can find. Um, and that's really, uh, you know, they, they estimate that nationwide from 2015 to 2019, uh, that there were 21,000 people who were under the age of 18 who were treated at American emergency rooms for legal intervention, police use of force. Um, so, but as far as, a, you know, a, as Weiwa was mentioning, you know, that sort of national database where every law enforcement agency puts in all of their incidents and we can clearly look and track patterns. That's not something that we've been able to find. Yeah. We're talking about the Marshall Project's recent investigation. Police hurt thousands of teens every year. A striking number are black girls with Abby Van Sickle, a staff writer at the Marshall Project, and Wei Wa Lee, a data reporter with the same organization. We want to hear from you. What are your reactions to what you're hearing and this reporting from the Marshall Project. If you're a parent, you know, what are your concerns about how police treat black girls and teens? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and on Facebook as well. We are at KQED Forum. And you can email your questions and comments to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more on this story after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the Marshall Project's recent investigation. Police hurt thousands of teens every year. A striking number are black girls with Abby Van Sickle, a staff writer with the Marshall Project, and Weiwa Lee, a data reporter also with the Marshall Project. Uh, Abby, I want to return to Brianna Stewart, who we talked about at the very beginning, kind of leads your story. Maybe you can continue her story. Tell us like, what happened to her after um, this incident. Yes. Yeah, so Brianna, um, after she was pepper sprayed in the face by the police, um, 
there was a bystander who had taken a video, you know, as we've seen in so many of these cases. Um, and that video went up on social media and suddenly um, millions of people had viewed what had happened to Brianna. And she said she felt sort of immediately under the microscope in her community. There, uh, as I'd mentioned before, the police department held a press conference to defend the officers and say they felt they'd acted appropriately. Brianna's family held a press conference uh, where she explained how she felt she had been uh, mistreated by the officers. And uh, it is, she felt like uh, prior to this, she had been a soccer player. Uh, she felt she was really under the microscope. She quit the team. She really struggled um, and you know, has told me she continues to struggle um, feeling like everyone in her community now knows her as the girl who was pepper sprayed. Um, she finished high school, um, briefly joined the military, and now is back with her family in Hagerstown, sort of trying to figure out what to do next. Um, but her experience, uh, you know, with the police, when I interviewed her, it was so clear, even from, you know, the way that she talked about this, that she still feels incredibly traumatized from mm. that experience. Mm. Is that something that it, it, it feels to me like that would be a common reaction to this kind of violent and, and terrifying encounter? You know, I, I definitely felt like that was something that emerged from these interviews is that I spoke with a number of girls uh, with their parents and lawyers along with them so that, you know, they could feel like um, comfortable in talking about what had happened. Um, but that same sort of pattern of feeling under the microscope and also um, traumatized really held throughout these families who you know don't know each other and are in different corners of this country. Um, one girl's uh, family was saying that she now sleeps with a weighted blanket to try to soothe her to sleep. Um, another mother told me that and that in her case, her daughter had had an officer on top of her back and that her daughter wakes up in the night yelling mm. that, you know, get off of my back. And this, you know, it was it was definitely a real pattern that was very clear um, from interviews. Yeah. What about the parents of these girls? What do they end up? What did they end up telling you about sort of how they had talked to their children about the police before these encounters? How they did that change afterwards? Like, how did they help their children manage the the trauma? Yeah, so there was not there wasn't a, a clear pattern in how they had talked to their kids beforehand. You know, Brianna's uh, parents had told her. Um, not to talk to police without them. Um, her mother is white, her father is black, and her mother had said that um, she really worried about her kids out in the community encountering police without without their mother with them. Um, but not all the parents, you know, described the same thing. Several of the families said that they had trust in police before this, and that these encounters are what had really shaken their faith and their children's faith that police were, you know, who they could call if they had a problem. Oh, man. Did any of the parents uh, have a, a different kind of reaction that you talked to? Or was it pretty much across the board um, that th this was the story? I would say that that was pretty consistent, um, that, that the families, you know, had... I, I don't think I talked to anybody who, you know, hadn't had their faith in law enforcement shaken by these encounters. Um, mm -hmm. One of the families, you know, specifically said that 
they trusted police beforehand, but that after seeing this actually happen to one of their kids, um, that they, you know, suddenly sort of understood what it meant for all of these, you know, videos that many of us have seen and what many communities have experienced, um, this real uh, lack of faith. I want to bring in Courtney from San Francisco into our conversation. Welcome, Courtney. Hello, thank you. Hey, thanks for giving us a call. Of course. Thank you so much for, I really appreciate you um, discussing this and talking about this because I have been been a victim of this um, just really excessive force um, by a police officer. Excuse me, I'm kind of nervous. Um, oh, sorry, Courtney, go happened, ahead. You can take your time. <laughs> this happened about 15 years ago, but even just talking about it now, like I get chills. It was really a traumatic incident. Um, I was young, I was around 17 at the time, and a police officer uh, attacked me from behind and pushed me down to the ground, put me in handcuffs, um, and the cuffs were really tight, and I mentioned that to him. Um, and to this day, like the handcuffs were so tight, I have a huge scar on my wrist mm. and he uh, pushed me down to the ground. I have a, uh, a scar on my forehead as well. It was just bleeding and the skin had came off on my forehead. Um, and, you know, it was just excessive. Wow. It was unprovoked. Just, you know, he was upset. There was a group of people that just weren't listening. And, you know, I just happened to be the one that, you know, was closest to him and he just pushed me down to the ground. And, um, and Courtney, where, where were you? Like, what was the situation going on when the, when the police arrived? So it was New Year's Eve and, um, you know, people were just kind of all in the streets and everything like that. And I guess there were some girls that were kind of going back and forth that I had no, like, I didn't know them at all. And, um, and then, uh, he, I guess he was, they were all trying to break it up. The police officers came over, they were trying to break it up. And this guy, this, this particular police officer, like, pushed me down to the ground. And I was just like, what in the world is going on? You know, like, I, I'm just trying to get out of here with a huge crowd of people. And um, pushed me down to the ground, put me in handcuffs. And, um, and at that time, I didn't see anyone that, like, you know, the girls that were, that were actually in the altercation they weren't handcuffed and they weren't black. I was the only black female um, in that crowd at the time. And so... Um, you felt like you, you were know, singled have, out because of that by the... Yes, exactly. Exactly. I, I did feel like I was singled out. And I was not being heard as well. You know, I'm saying like, hey, I, I'm, like, I don't know what's going on. These handcuffs are really hurting me. Like, you know, no one was listening to me. None of the officers were listening to me. Um, mind you, I was young at the time, 217. So I was just like... You know, I didn't know what to do. Granted, my parents had talked to me about, you know, situations that can happen with the police. Um, but, you know, you just never really know until you're in that situation and you don't know how to feel or what to do. You know, mm-hmm. it could be very traumatizing. And even with my parents going to my parents after that, you know, they wanted to go to the police. But we just felt like nothing was going to get done. You know, we've been through this situation before, like not that particular incident, but just 
going to the police for for different reasons and just not being heard, you know. Um, even for me in that instance, I was speaking up and just saying, hey, like, what's going on? Like, I'm, these handcuffs, like, I don't even know why I'm in handcuffs right, right. now. And no one was listening to me. Every, they were just, like, ignoring me. Um, and it was a group of, like, four to five police officers. Uh-huh. Um, so can I... Um, Last thing, I mean, did this have a lasting effect on your on your mental health, on your relationship with the the police or, or other kinds of law enforcement? Yes, I would say all of the above. You know, like I have these scars on me that will never go away. So, um, you know, just visually seeing them on me, like especially on my forehead, um, it's just it's just a reminder, you know, of yeah. like what. The, the police in, enforcement that you would think would protect you that are supposed to p- be protecting and put peace officers actually didn't do that, do that. And then based off just the color of my skin, potentially, you know what I mean? It, it really just, it just really does something to you. And, and, and it just makes you frustrated about the system that we're going through. And just to hear um, the statistics and, and the data that, you guys have presented today it just really goes to show like this is a real thing you know mm-hmm. and sometimes as african americans are just women black women we feel like we're silenced and we can't speak up you know and i really appreciate all of those young women that are speaking up telling their story you know and um or if you do speak do up that. that no one's listening yeah yeah yeah, yeah. courtney yeah. thank you so People much for yeah you know? yeah Thank you so much for for sharing this with us and no just going back into it can't be easy. We really we really really appreciate it. Thank you. Um Abby Van Sickle, I wanted to ask you about Courtney's story. Um sounds like this is like directly in line with the reporting that you've uh, done to date. Yes, yeah. Thank you Courtney for sharing that. I I would say that what she's describing uh, sounds very similar to the situations uh, that came from our reporting, which is, uh, you know, one of the things she mentioned with the handcuffs is that for when we reached out to law enforcement agencies, um, one agency in particular um, pointed out that they mainly used lower levels of force on kids, um, including handcuffing and gun pointing. And one of the things that really stood out to me is that those two things in particular came up in every interview <laughs> that someone had, mm-hmm. if they'd had a gun pointed at them or if they'd been handcuffed, mm-hmm. they mentioned that as a trauma. Uh, the, the scars and bruising from the handcuffs, but also just the feeling that the handcuffs you know, that was something that really stuck with, with minors, you know, who we talked to. Um, and also the, the feeling of being in a group of people, um, and, you know, and being kind of singled out is something that, uh, we also heard. Mm-hmm. Wait, well, I wanted to ask you about the, the way that these use of force incidents are sort of categorized, right, as sort of like low or high, where a lot of the things that we're talking about, like what, what Courtney described of, you know, being handcuffed until she bled, of having her head hit so she, you know, still has a scar uh, 15 years later, those are, those are, go into the data as sort of a low use of force, right? That's right. And in some police departments, um, instance where, for example, um, where a police officer pointed a gun at a minor may not be even recorded. 
um, our, our reporting partner um, from Chicago have told us that uh, Chicago Police Department actually fought very hard so that their police using force database wouldn't include gun pointing as one of the form of force used. Mm -hmm. So there definitely is a mismatch, if you will, between how the police departments classify using force and what it feel like, what it felt like to um, kids and even adults who were involved in these incidents. Man. Um, we've got a, uh, another caller I want to add into the conversation. Um, Leia, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for uh, letting me on. Um, I wanted to say that, you know, police departments receive federal dollars, um, you know, in, in terms of grants and stuff like that. And I think there should be, you know, some some strings attached to that in, in order that they receive this money, um, that it should be mandated that any and all interactions between law enforcement and persons 18 and under, say, or 16 and under, if they want to get really picky about it, should be recorded in a um, national database because, um, you know, sunshine is the best disinfectant. And if we want to hold our law enforcement accountable because they're supposed to be public servants, then um, we should require that, you know, you don't you don't get the bucks for free. <laughs> you got to do this. Yeah. And if you don't want to do it, then you don't get the money. Leia, thank you for that uh, suggestion. Abby Van Sickle, you've been covering these issues for a long time. Is, is there a chance that we're going to see something like that required mandated reporting attached to, say, the federal dollars that go to police departments? You know, I, I was thinking um, as she was talking about which departments we're able to get data from. And one thing I think that kind of stands out is many of these departments have been under federal investigation and federal court oversight. Mm. Um, and that, that uh, you know, I have not heard of a, of a, you know, movement to require federal funding tied with data transparency, but that through some of these court cases where there's oversight, um, that you know, data is collected and, and released and that there appears to be at least some more transparency and scrutiny on some of those departments. Um, so that's sort of the closest that I'm aware of. You know, one of the things that I think probably has occurred to a lot of listeners, certainly has occurred to me listening to these stories, is like, do these police officers have specialized training for dealing with really young people, for dealing with girls and, and boys relative to, to dealing with adults? So that was one of the first questions that we set out to answer. And, you know, back in the spring, we started looking at policies and training and to try to understand, okay, so if an officer is just starting out, are they, how are they trained to deal with adults versus minors and youths? And one of the first departments that we looked at was Cleveland because they, of course, had had the fatal shooting of Tamir Rice, um, who was 12. And that department um, you know, more than five years later, had just started to roll out a policy, um, you know, laying out how officers should be interacting with youths. Um, and that included things like using age-appropriate language, recognizing if, um, if a youth is in crisis, um, you know, some specific things that officers could be held to and trained on. Um, but that, you know, we heard from people who do these kind of trainings, develop the trainings and go into um, departments. Uh, one is a woman named Lisa Thoreau, who has an organization, um, Strategies for Youth, where she does this specific kind of training um, that she said, you know, many departments 
don't have this kind of training uh, that she, you know, goes in and, and tries to focus on things like brain development, on de-escalating, slowing things down, that one of the things that officers tend to say if someone is, a kid is in a crisis is calm down, and that that's one of the worst things that they can say, because that just inflames the encounter. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not, it's not, you know, it's not like every department has this training at this point. Um, it is, it's something that, um, you know, that's not widespread. Yeah. You know, uh, listener Mike, uh, has some questions just in our last minute here. Mike writes, in any analysis, we need the flow. How many contacts between each group and police? How many contacts have aggravating factors such as weapons? How many contacts end up with police use of force? Is this a problem of more calls to police um, or something else or more type of each call leading to police use of force? We need that information to seek solutions. What can you tell us about that kind of proportionality just here uh, at the end of the show? You know, we would love to have um, more data I know that Weiwa and I both would have loved to get all the calls for service, of all the calls for service, how many led to use of force, of those, how many were kids, of those, what was the level and the kind of force used, and what's the information about each case. And that is not something that we have been able to get. Um, You know, we would love more transparency. We've been talking about the Marshall Project's recent investigation. Police hurt thousands of teens every year. A striking number are black girls with Abby Van Sickle, staff writer with the Marshall Project, and Wei Wali, data reporter, also with the Marshall Project. Thank you so much to you both. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Stay tuned for more Forum. We'll be back after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Soul to Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Soul to Story are available now.